The message today is entitled Spiritual Disciplines. Spiritual Disciplines from James chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. Let's read that together. James 1, 21. James writes to the diaspora, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Let me pray one more time. Oh, Father, thank you so much again for this time to look into your word and to, to dig deep and find out what you would have us do. Help us to be humble people. Help us to be low-minded people, not focused on ourselves these next few minutes to be completely fixed on what your word says and what it means we love you in jesus name amen well rarely do i ever talk about tv from the pulpit at least because there aren't that many tv shows that i watch shocking right there is one tv show that that has intrigued me very much though in the last year it's called shark tank have you ever watched Shark Tank? It's a reality show where a panel of five multimillionaire businessmen and women, affectionately called the Sharks, invite broke but very enthusiastic and highly energetic entrepreneurs the opportunity to pitch their invention and business model. The purpose of this presentation, then, is to convince one or more of the Sharks to invest their own hard-earned money into a brand new or struggling company in exchange for a piece of the action. And what's entertaining about that is how they negotiate what that number will come to be. There's one pitch that I saw recently that really intrigued me, that really stood out. A young woman came into the tank with a full-length mirror. You know, the kind of mirror that you'd see at a department store in a dressing room. The name of the product was the Skinny Mirror. Anybody seen this one? It's called the Skinny Mirror, a name which gives a clue to what this intended use. Now, the Skinny Mirror was intended to help women with, quote-unquote, low self-esteem by giving her the appearance of looking skinny when she looked into the Skinny Mirror. Seriously. And before she could even finish her talk, okay, the most aggressive, blunt, harsh one, known as Mr. Wonderful, the bald guy that sits in the middle, he speaks up and he says, I will not be a part of the sham. Now, as far as I can tell, this man is not a religious person in any stretch of the imagination. 
In fact, some of the things he says hopefully wouldn't come out of a believer's mouth. But what struck me is this shark rejected this idea very early on. Why? Because the mirror was deceptive. He didn't want to be a part of a lie. Even if that would make millions, he didn't want to be a part of outright lie. Because mirrors are supposed to project accurate reflections, not a false one. So, this multi-millionaire businessman was actually offended by the pitch because for the young entrepreneur to think that he would fund a lie was outlandishly unthinkable. And, and I, I applaud him for that because I thought it was pretty sketchy myself. We all expect mirrors to reflect reality, don't we? When we look in the mirror every day at home, we want the absolute honest truth about our physical appearance. You don't want to spend all that time primping in front of the mirror and you get to where you're going and they say, hey, what's that on your face? You, you want your mirror to project reality. So, so we use physical mirrors every day, some of us more than others. But did you know there actually exists a mirror that would reflect the reality of the condition of your soul? It's God's Word. And as we gaze into the mirror of Scripture, unlike the sham of the skinny mirror, it will always give a 100% truthful reflection of who you are. James will teach us this morning in this passage that if we want to be righteous Christians, we have to look in the mirror. As often, or hopefully more, than you look at the mirror at home. Last week I mentioned that in the beginning of chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 2, verse 26, is made up of the next connected unit of thought here in James's epistle. And the section that is mainly being discussed in that unit of thought is the idea of a righteous person becoming more righteous by means of obedience to the word. That's the theme that connects those verses. So now, we're going to carry on with that theme this morning. Last week, we laid out three skills of a righteous talker, which are listen up, shut up, excuse me, or hush up, rather, or calm down. I heard another sermon that said shut up, but I didn't use that one. But, so sorry if that just offended you. Listen up, hush up, calm down. Three skills of a righteous talker in the previous section. Now this Lord's Day, we're going to learn how to be a more righteous Christian, by practicing two primary, primary spiritual disciplines. Two primary spiritual disciplines. And I'm not talking about things like fasting, or prayer, or other things that other denominations teach as spiritual disciplines. I'm talking about the basic, fundamental, baseline spiritual disciplines that we need to practice in order to be righteous. According to James 1, verse 21, the first spiritual discipline that you need to become a righteous Christian is to learn the Word. Number one, learn the Word. Verse 21. 
He says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Look at that first word, that first verb, putting aside. Literally, it's having laid aside. That's important to highlight. It's, it has the idea of having laid aside, past tense. Laying aside something that, like laying aside a coat when you're not wearing it. In fact, that's exactly how the same verb is used in Acts 7.58 when referring to the Jews who had laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Same word. But here, obviously, James isn't talking about laying aside a jacket, is he? He's talking about the figurative use. To speak of something that true Christians have already done. So, listen, you're not being commanded right now to lay aside filthiness and wickedness. You've already done that if you're saved. The text is assuming that one has already laid aside filthiness, which is has to do uh, with moral defilement or impurity. Because you know that it would be a huge barrier to learning the Word of God, right? You also have laid aside all that remains of wickedness. And now wickedness, in this sense, is a general evil in a moral sense of heart and character. It pertains more to the sin that is deliberate and determined. But also this sort of wickedness could never be outwardly manifested. Meaning that someone can still be wicked before God and never really express it before man. That's what a Pharisee is, right? Outwardly, they're like whitewashed tombs, but inwardly, they're like ravenous wolves, Jesus said. So filthiness and wickedness are both characteristics of depraved, unregenerate men. They are not characteristics of a true believer. And before God's word can produce righteousness in you, you must have already put away the sin that indwelt in your former self. Because you can't both be righteous and unrighteous, right? Either or. And also think, how many filthy and wicked people do you know that are eager to learn the word of God? Right? I don't know any of them. Before my conversion, the last thing I wanted to do is do what you're doing right now. Sit down willingly and listen to a pretty lengthy exposition. I mean, that's kind of weird. Unrighteous people don't want to do that. But righteous ones do. Because that's one of the primary means by which you learn the word. Paul uses the same concept of laying aside or putting aside the old corrupt man several times in his letters, Ephesians 4.22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Colossians 3.9 and 10. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, so you take off the old self like you take off a jacket, and you put on the new self, 
who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And now what follows in the text is another imperative, okay? Putting aside filthiness and wickedness, that's something we've already done, okay? It's very important to understand that. Obvious implication, ask yourself, have you done that? Have you laid aside the old man? If that's a new concept to you, that's possible that you have a incomplete understanding of the gospel or an immature one. Laying aside the old self and putting on a new man, that's fundamental. Okay, so what, what next here in the text, it is an imperative. It's a command. It's something that we need to do. He says, in humility, receive the word implanted. Now, what is James talking about here? He's saying that you need to learn the written word of God and keep on learning it so that it will direct and control your life. To put it, as, put it very briefly and succinctly, that's what he's saying. Learn the word of God and keep on learning it so that it will direct and control your life. Number one, basic foundational spiritual discipline here. The Greek word translated receive can be used in a sense to take, you know, take hold of something. Like, he, like here, here's a, here's a book, will you receive it? Or here's a gift, will you receive this? It's not, it's not like that. Like Luke twenty two seventeen, it says when he received the cup from the attendant. Right, James is not talking about just taking something in your hand. He's, saying, he's not saying here, take a Bible and just put it to your library. You know, He's not saying that. It's, it's, it's used here to refer to one receiving something that's presented, presented to you and admitting it with the mind and heart and embracing and following it. It's the same idea in Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So, they, these people that they're talking about in Acts, they, they heard the word preached, and they received it, meaning they owned it. They, they took what was presented, they thought about it, and they embraced it, and now they're following it. That's what you do when you learn the word, I hope, right? Then James reveals a very key, vital statement about the word of God. Now, this, you're going to see why here at SVBC, we have such a high view of Scripture. You're going to be confronted with that right here. Because James says, it is able to save your souls. The word of God is able to save your souls. But to somebody with a low view of scripture, that's a radical statement, but it's a biblical one. Now you ask, save your soul from what? Well, there's a past, present, and future aspect to this idea of the Word being able to save your souls. Okay, I'm going to go through these three briefly. Number one, the Word saved us from the wrath of hell. Past. That's true. Did you know that it was the Word of God that was the means of your eternal salvation? 
when you were, became regenerate, it was either because you heard the gospel spoken through a, uh, an evangelist or a preacher, or you simply read it somewhere, either in a Bible or a different book with scripture in it. Maybe even a song that has the scripture in it. However, whatever the case, the scripture was the instrument of your salvation. The Holy Spirit was the agent of your salvation, meaning that the Holy Spirit took the word of God, implanted it in your heart, and caused it to grow. But when you believed, it was by means of hearing the word. Romans 10:17. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, without the word of God, we're hopeless. That's the past aspect of the word being able to save you. The present is this. The word sanctifies us from the power of sin. Since believers have a new heart with a new will, and the ability to ascertain spiritual truth, they have the word of God to guide them away from temptation and sin, and it makes you holy. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus himself said in his high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So the way you become sanctified is through the word of truth. Letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's the present aspect of the Word saving you. But there's also a future aspect here. The Word will separate us from the presence of sin ultimately. Because we see in the whole of Scripture that the verb to save and the noun salvation often refer to the believer's ultimate deliverance from sin and death that takes place at the time of Christ's return to glory. 2 Timothy 4.18, listen to this. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And listen. Will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. So you see there's still a future aspect of our salvation And we only know that because of the Word. So with regard to three aspects, to those three aspects, the truth of Scripture alone can justify, sanctify, and glorify you. Does that make sense? Do you see why we take such a strong stance on the Word of God? That it alone is inerrant and infallible? It alone is the sole source of our faith and practice. It alone speaks with ultimate authority. It alone can offer true hope. It's because James says that it's able to save your souls. But you have to learn the word understand that. That's the first spiritual discipline that you must practice in order to be a righteous Christian. The second one is in verses 22 to 25. 
First learn the word, then obey the word. Obey the word. Now this one might be a little bit harder to take in. Because every Christian, right, would say, yeah, we need to learn the Word, man. It's all about the Word. It's all about the Bible. All about Jesus. Yay, Jesus, right? That's not hard to convince somebody. You go to the most liberal church in America, and everybody will at least give lip service to the Bible. But then when you say, okay, well, what about this specific command? Like, oof. Well, you're going too far with that, bro. You're starting to sound like a fundamentalist. Slow down. All right, well, let's see what James says about this. The proper response to learning the word, taking in the word, agreeing with it, admitting it, and following it, and to keep on doing that, the proper response to it is direct obedience, which is part of our mission statement. We exist to glorify God, preaching the word, evangelizing the lost, discipling the saved, and obeying Jesus Christ for the glory of God. Okay? It's okay. We'll get there. Patience, right? So, we need to understand, as important as it is to learn the Word, without obedience to its truths, it just becomes further judgment upon its readers. One commentator puts it this way, Obedience to the Word is the most basic spiritual requirement that is the common denominator for all true believers. Hearing the Word is not enough. We need to obey it. Look at verse 22 again. James says, But prove yourselves to be doers of the Word. Now this is another imperative, carrying the idea of a forceful divine mandate. James is saying that all true believers are required to comply with God's moral law. But not only do we observe from the grammar the urgency of this command, we can see also that the tense of the verb reveals something that's also equally important. That the action of being a doer is something that we must keep on striving to be our whole life. Being a doer is not an activity we're allowed to cease or decrease. As we become sanctified through the living word, growing up in our salvation, we should become more and more obedient to the word. Not less obedient or lukewarm or cold. I remember after God saved me, it gave me a new heart that actually wanted to learn the Word and do the Word. I naturally assumed that old people who've been Christians for a long time would actually want to discuss theology and model biblical ethics. Boy, was I shocked when I found out that's not the case. To my uttering astonishment and perplexing dismay, that was not the case. I had one lady in her mid-40s who boasted about being a Christian for decades in response to a question or argument said something to the effect of, well, your zeal will wear off soon. 
your fire will die down eventually. You kind of just gave me one of these things. Now listen. If you've been in Christ for decades, and you don't even like to talk about Jesus, or the gospel, or the Godhead, or Christian living, you are cold. You older men and women, I'm talking to you older men and women now, you need to be examples of doing the word. And you know where it starts? Titus 2. Go ahead and turn there. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Titus 2. If you're an older man or woman, Titus 2 is where you need to live. And I'm speaking to the older men and women in our congregation because that's the majority, I think. And there are some issues that could be confronted right now. And we're going to allow the scripture to do it. So older men and women, this I'm showing you a practical way to be a doer. I'm showing you a practical way to obey this command to be a doer of the word, okay? Let's start in verse 3. I'll start out with the ladies, then I'll get to the men. Because I have some harsher words for the men. I'm just kidding. Titus 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Older women, now, okay, just for the sake of clarity, older women could be 40s, 50s, 60s, and up. Okay? I'm sorry, but that's the truth. Okay, listen, it says, teaching what is good. Okay, we got that, we got that off the table now, okay? It says, teaching what is good, okay? So we start out there. With older women, you're supposed to be teaching. Now, why? Older ladies, why should you be teaching? Well, he's going to tell us, verse 4, so that they may encourage. Now, let me stop there for a second. Encourage, um, I, don't, I don't knock the NAS very much, okay, because that's my, that's my version of choice. But the NAS, unfortunately, misses it here. It gets it wrong. The Greek word does not mean encourage, because when we say encourage, you know, in our Christianese, we don't want to sound too authoritative. We don't want to sound too judgmental. So we say, man, brother, I just want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to take that class. I want to encourage you to go to Bible study. I want to encourage you to do that, that, this, and that. Okay? I get that. But right now, the Word of God is not encouraging you to do this. Here's what the Greek word means. It means to correct and train to think and act soberly. To train and correct to think and act soberly. Okay? So, the word doesn't mean encourage, it means to train. The ESV gets it right. I point out this, as I said, because we, we, we like to use the word encourage to kind of soften something. But here, I can't soften it because that's what Paul uses here. The Bible here expects older women to train the younger to do seven things, okay? If you're not taking notes... Mark these in your Bible. 
First, women, young, or older women train the younger women to love their husbands. That's a shocking statement. You go into the world and you say, as an older woman, one of my main priorities in life is to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Oh, it's even going to get more controversial later. <laughs> Secondly, train the young women, older women, to love their children. Love their children. That implies that they actually have children. Today, young women are encouraged to wait to have kids. Have kids when you feel like it, when it's more convenient. Have, it, have kids when you're all set up and ready to do it. That's a worldly thing. But I'm not going to go there. Thirdly, older women teach the younger women to be sensible. Straightforward. Fourthly, to be pure. Ooh, now it's really going to strike a nerve. Ooh, here we go. Number five, workers at home. Younger women, do you desire to be trained to be a worker at home? I hope so, because that's your role. Sixthly, to be kind, straightforward, and seventh. This is we're going to really bad. Ready? Older women train the younger women to be subject to their husbands. Whew. It's a military term. Rank yourself under your husband. You go to the public square. You say that I'm training women in my church to be subject to their husband. You will start a riot. Yes, you will. Okay? So, older women, let me ask you. When was the last time you trained a young woman to love their husbands? To love their children? To be subject to their own husbands? And to be workers at home? That just doesn't happen anymore. That, I mean, that's just so foreign to people's thinking in most churches. Amazing. It's so, it's so basic. I mean, all I did was simply read it. Crazy. Okay, older men, it's your turn. Ready? Back to verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Okay, in other words, be men of character and model that. Now drop down to verse 6. Titus 2.6. Likewise, okay, likewise Titus. Titus is the one who is receiving this letter. And you could also uh, include older men in this. Titus and older men urge the young men. Okay, urge. It's the Greek word parakaleo. Para, which we use today, means to come along the side of. And kaleo means to call. So come alongside the young man and call him to do something. Don't encourage him. 
come alongside of and call him to do something. You older men, here you go. You need to do three things. Be sensible, which means to be sober-minded and self-disciplined. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Now listen to this. Here, 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 here you go, men. This is what I'm going to pick on you a little bit. In verse 2, it says sound in faith. And in verse 7, it says purity and doctrine. There's that dirty word, doctrine. Men, did you know, all of you men, look at me. Did you know that God has commanded you to be an example in knowing doctrine? Do you know that? Wouldn't you say that's utterly lacking in our church today? Not too long ago, I heard a pastor give a very powerful sermon about this. And listen to what he said. Okay, and I know some of you are thinking, no, it's not John MacArthur, okay? Just a different pastor. I heard this pastor give a powerful sermon to illustrate this truth, okay? He said, now I'm paraphrasing. He said, in modern American Christianity, we will not tolerate biblical and theological maturity in men. Nothing above mediocrity. And he said, I'll prove it to you. Older men, listen, put yourself in, the, in, this, in your shoes, in this shoes here. Say you have a young man Say, 17, 16, 18, 19, whatever. He comes to you because he's been reading theology and he's been studying and he has a passion and a zeal for the Word of God. And he comes to you as an older man and he says, Sir, I see that you've been serving the Lord 50, 60, 70 years. I want to come alongside you and learn how to be a man. I want to come alongside you and learn and, and, and have you teach me piety, theology, and church history. Because if anyone that could teach me these things, it's you. I want to come into your home and I want you to show me how to love my wife and lead my wife and teach and discipline my children. Because I know you've been doing it for decades. Older men, what would you what would you say? If you would deny that young man the tutelage he needs and desires, then you're failing to be a doer of the word. You would be disobedient because Titus two says that's what you're to do. And the sad reality is that many of the old men in most churches would not disciple that young man. Because as this pastor poignantly observed, the church is the only institution in the world where widespread mediocrity is rampant and acceptable. The only institution that does this. You pick any other career field, any other institution, and that's not acceptable. In the military, 
You go in as a private. It's assumed and expected that the sergeant first class, who's only actually been in the military for 10 or 12 years, is going to take that private and he's going to show him how to go in the field and do his job. But sergeant's not going to say, I ain't got time for that, buddy. You're on your own. Or if you're a bricklayer, say a young man wants to be a bricklayer, and he gets an apprenticeship job. It's assumed that he's going to go to the man who's been laying bricks for 30, 40 years, and that man is going to teach him the ropes on how to be a bricklayer. But in the church, the men who would boast about being in Christ for 30, 40 years, I got too much to do. I got work, I got the gym, I got football, I got whatever. And there's no discipleship going on. This is Titus. This is being a doer. So this, this can't be any more practical. can't be any more practical. This text provides very clear instruction on how to be a doer of the word. I'm just explaining it and reading it. We need to be confronted with these basic truths because we will neglect the plain reading of Scripture and we will fail to be a doer of the word if we don't pay attention So the church today, more than ever perhaps, in our extremely individualistic culture, needs mature men and women to do Titus 2. And you know what? It should happen naturally. We shouldn't have to depend on programs to see this happen. It should be happening naturally. We need mature Christians who are obedient to the word to do the basic things. And the basic things are lacking. Not just here, but in most churches across America. Now James goes on to say something pretty stern about those who learn the word, but do not obey it. Listen to this. It gets even more sharp here. You ready? They delude themselves. People who do not obey the word delude themselves. It carries the idea of reasoning falsely or incorrectly. In other words, they're wrong. They've deceived themselves. They have been misled by their own folly and erroneous thinking. Now, one key observation to point out, really quick. James says that the disobedient Christian cannot blame their disobedience on anyone else other than themselves. Look, that reflexive pronoun, themselves. And by James including that reflexive pronoun in there, themselves, we are confronted with the fundamental reality that ignorance and immaturity and bad influence are no excuses before God to sin. A man cannot stand before God, give account for his life, hear a guilty verdict, and say, God, I didn't know that you wrote that in your book. Or, God, uh, someone told me, my pastor told me, that you didn't really mean what you wrote in your book. So I just didn't do it. Right? That defense would not work in our own court system, would it? Have you ever been pulled over by a cop for speeding? Who's been pulled over by a cop for speeding? 
It's okay. I have. A bunch of times when I was 16. Now, if I were to say to that cop, Officer, I didn't know I was going 15 miles over the speed limit. What would he say? I'll tell you what he would say. I got a ticket for it. So? It doesn't matter you didn't know. You still broke the law. Right? So uh, in the same sense, we can't claim ignorance of the law as an excuse not to be doers. My beloved older men and women, we can't claim ignorance for failing to be Titus 2 men and women. So, let me drop down to verses 23 to 25. I need to skip some here. 23, verse 23 to 25. James uses, uses a double simile to illustrate the importance of doing and not merely hearing the word, okay? For the, if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man who looks at the natural face in the mirror. Now, let me stop right there for a second. The Greek word translated looks, it's a compound verb. From kata, which means down, preposition, which means to look down. And then noeo, meaning perceive or understand. So the preposition kata intensifies the meaning of noeo. So James is intending his readers to understand that he's not merely talking about a quick glimpse in the mirror, okay? That's the point. The, paraphr- uh, the, the, the preposition at the beginning of the main verb intensifies it. To look down with careful and cautious consideration. As opposed to taking a quick glance, okay? And the reason why James says this is because mirrors in the first century, they were not glass. They were metallic, made of bronze or silver or gold if you were rich. Which is why even if you had the most well-crafted, expensive mirror, it paled into comparison to the mirrors we have today. Because when we look in the mirror, we take a quick glance, we, got, we get an we get accurate reflection. But then you had to like look really intently and make sure you had the right angle so the light would shine on it so you could get a somewhat reasonable picture of your face. So you see why the background is a little bit important there to help us understand the depth of what he's saying. So that's the idea of carefully and cautiously looking in the mirror. But then for whatever reason, in verse 24... He says, for once he has looked at himself and had gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. In other words, as soon as he puts down the mirror or walks away from the mirror, he forgets what he just saw seconds ago after he just so carefully and cautiously observed his reflection. And now we can relate to that, can't we? Haven't you ever spent a long time getting ready for a big event in front of the mirror? And you do everything within your power to make yourself look presentable. And then because you took too long getting ready, ladies, and then you, 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 took, you took so long getting ready, you run out of time, your husband's yelling up the stairs, we gotta go, we gotta go! And, and then you just rush off because you're gonna be late. And you get into the car, you take out your little compact mirror and you're still primping. And then you get there and you go into the bathroom to look one more time. 
You do that because you forget what you just saw just seconds ago. Right? Now, why, why, would, you, why would a person unconsciously keep looking in the mirror? Because the image we get, we, 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 we forget exactly what it looks like immediately. So here's the point of James' simile. Unless professing Christians act promptly after they learn the word, they will forget the changes and improvements that the reflection showed them they needed to make. So to put it another way, when a Christian learns the word by way of careful and cautious understanding and fails to apply the truths to one's personal life, he is like someone who immediately forgets what he had just seen in the mirror. Case in point, older men and women, after you have just heard a brief exposition of Titus 2, if you do not stop, make the corrections and improvements to obey those commands, you are like the man who looks in the mirror intently, walks away, and then forgets. So understand that the word is like a mirror, and not like the skinny mirror. When you learn it, it presents a true reflection when you learn it from your study and through preaching and teaching, you need to ask yourself, what do I see? And ask yourself, do I see the changes that need to be made? Do I see what thinking needs to be changed in my brain? Do you look in the mirror of Scripture and see that you are a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior? keep on humbling us. Because when we're confronted with the Word, whether it's just a theological concept, you know, sometimes you hear a sermon or you read the Word, and the only thing you need to get out of it is the glory of God. The glory of God should make us worship Him and adore Him more. So just like we look in the mirror and we immediately correct our physical appearance, you know. We need to always be willing to learn from the Word and correct what needs to be corrected spiritually. That's the point here. Verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Okay? So opposed to the one who hears the word and does not act immediately and quickly forgets what he has learned, the one who responds to the word and obeys it accordingly is blessed by experiencing the freedom from sin's bondage that results from his or her, his or her life being changed. Okay, Now think about it this way. When an alcoholic gets saved... He becomes radically transformed by the power of the gospel. And then because he's an obedient Christian, he goes to church and he sits under biblical exposition. Right? Then it's not too long before he hears an explanation of Ephesians 5.18, which says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And upon learning how, receiving how, God forbids drunkenness, and immediately he starts obeying, he experiences the blessing of being liberated from that life-dominating sin that once controlled him because he obeyed. 
Very simple, right? Fundamental principle. Learn the word, then obey the word. These two commandments, these two spiritual disciplines that we covered today are absolutely fundamental to your existence as a believer. And I spent some extra time in the cross-reference to serve as an illustration because I'm convinced that the church is weakest in that area. John Piper wrote this book, Don't Waste Your Life. He gets it too. He was getting discouraged by the old people who boast about being Christians for decades do nothing. So all I'm saying, we have to learn the word, receive it, own it, be conformed by it, follow it, and obey it. Do it. And do it well. Do it continually. Do it for the glory of God. If you make a lifelong habit of practicing these two spiritual disciplines, you will become a more and more righteous believer for the glory of your Master. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us such a sharp, poignant, clear mandate. Father, we all are workers By nature, we all have to have something to do. None of us can just sit around and just take in information and do nothing. We're created to be workmen. And it's evident, even in an unbelieving world, how they become slaves to their careers and they become slaves to their hobbies because they just have to do something with their life. Lord, that's not the case for us. We understand that. We understand that we are called to believe the gospel, to learn who you are, to learn the depth of the scripture, but we're also called to go do something. Father, I pray that we don't become a lukewarm church where all we're we're content with just coming to church and learning and then going out and doing nothing for you. Oh, I pray, Lord, that the text this morning will convict the older men and women to become Titus two men and women. I also pray for the younger who will be humble enough to seek out the discipleship and learn. Help us, Lord, to be a true church that exists to glorify you by making disciples for your glory. In Jesus' name.